3: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
1: People are traveling. That can be very anxiety producing. Have a plan for your packing. First of all, roll your items, have separate packing bags. They could be Ziploc bags, they could be actual packing cubes, but you could do either by each. Each outfit goes in one packing cube or it could be all t-shirts going to packing cube, all underwear, etc. Try to pick a color scheme. When I travel, I'll decide I'm either wearing the Browns or if it's tropical, the colors or if it's skiing or somewhere like urban, like a city like Boston or something, I'll pick black. I'll pick a hardware. If you care about your hardware matching and wear the heavy things on the plane with you or in the car with you and you're not going to wear most of it. So cut, of it out. You can wear the same shoes multiple times with different outfits. Pick a color scheme because that means that you need fewer accessories, bags, and staples for that trip. Just make your life easier. Today, my guest is Michael Capone, the founder and president of Global Empowerment Mission, and he is a partner in my Be Strong initiative. Michael's been at the forefront of disaster relief aid since the late 90s, helping people around the world when natural disasters strike. And other issues too, since being involved with me, other things that have been important to us. And this is a different episode because um, my friends at iHeart suggested that I do something on my philanthropy, on Be Strong. I don't usually sort of promote the things that I'm doing here, it's just not, When I go on other people's shows, I promote these things, but this is something that always saves lives. So, you know, a little self promotion, I guess, for Be Strong isn't a bad idea because it's any promotion for Be Strong just means we're saving more lives, literally helping more people. Um, So, today is a different show. It's talking about philanthropy, which is really related to business. The show talks a lot about business and how to get things done. And philanthropy for me has been no different than business, except That 100% goes to the effort. But the reason it's been no different is that it was really hard to establish credibility in this space. It was really hard to execute. I had a startup pop up where literally in the very beginning, no one would give me flip flops after... Hurricane Harvey, just flip flops. As me and people send me things for free all the time, or used to, I couldn't get flip flops. I couldn't get anything. I was a nobody, and nobody wants to give money to a nobody to help people. You're not trusted. And trust me, so many trusted charities are such scams and take so much money for themselves that I got into this space so I could really cut the bullshit, cut the rubber chicken dinners, cut the, oh, come shopping and buy something. I get 10% going towards a Charity. Like there's just so much scam and so much bullshit. And I just wanted to get in here and cut through the bullshit with all the transparency and just executing. So that's the story about why we're doing a conversation with Michael because we work together and be strong. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Okay. So this is Michael Capone, who I have worked with on many different missions all over the world on relief work with Be Strong. Uh, so Michael, you have an interesting story, in my opinion, which is why we wanted to talk to you today, not about just all of the work that we've done, because while that's interesting, it can be a little bit uh, tedious and boring for people. And sometimes I have to tell you that people aren't always in the mood to give and they have deal fatigue now because of all the crazy stuff going on in the world. So I think, um, sort of people getting an understanding of you and the business of, of philanthropy, which is really why I've been successful at this because it really is, there's a business aspect to it and execution and being organized. And it feels like you're starting a new, uh, business, just not for profit. So, uh, tell everyone what your business trajectory has been. Like, well, I met you years ago. I was, I went to some, there was a girl whose father was the publisher, Jerry powers. I think he was the publisher of ocean drive magazine. And I went with his daughter to like a fancy party in Miami, like a very jet setty fast crowd party in Miami at this big house on the water. I don't remember where it was. You could tell us. And, I think it was your house, and I remember meeting you, and you were super standoffish and really too cool, like a like a club promoter, and I think that's what you were. So explain how I came into that night and who you were then and when that was.
4: So my father was in the nightclub business, and I ended up in the nightclub business. So the first part of my career from being a 15-year-old to basically 30-something I was at the helm of nightlife in Miami Beach and opened up uh, you know, lots of different nightclubs and learned the art of networking and uh, connecting the dots, which really was a great lesson and teaching to what we're doing now with philanthropy because it's kind of the same thing. You have to get a whole bunch of really important people to come to an event. Now, instead of doing that, you're getting a whole bunch of really important people or regular people to donate to a cause. So it's the same art form; it's just uh, flipped.
1: It's true, because then you have to figure out where Gen Pop is going in the nightclub because they're important and they're your bread and butter, but you want people to be spending money buying bottles at the major tables and you want to give them uh, extra attention. And that's how we do it. Certain people will donate three planes, and then we want to explain exactly where those planes are going to go, which is like saying exactly where your table is going to be when you're buying a bottle and get you right away, get you in right away. And you need to understand what the whole rundown is going to be. And then people are donating $5 and we want them to also feel happy and comfortable. So your dad, what clubs did your dad own? I didn't even know that.
4: Yeah, my dad swam the English Channel. He had the world record for a while and he opened up in uh, Belgium where I was born a series of like the original jet set clubs. So my dad went out with my dad's girlfriend was Jane Mansfield. He was best friends with Sean Connery you know, Brigitte Bardot. All these people would go to these places.
1: Interesting. Okay. So what, cl- you were involved, but you were in friends with like major celebrities, right? You were running in a really fast crowd. You, you were like, you knew Madonna and Ingrid Casares and all these people would come, right?
4: I mean, I think every celebrity on the planet made it through Miami in its heyday, you know, at some point or another. So they definitely ended up in our, in our spots.
1: So um so so now you're running night nightclubs, you're what's the existence like? What's your life like? Is it fun? Is it vapid? Is it superficial? Is it all of that? What what's that story like?
4: I think when you're in it, you're caught up in it, you're lost in a you know, candy store of pleasure. And um, I didn't like it anymore. And I was always doing humanitarian work since uh, nineteen ninety-nine, actually, it's when we first started. We were doing drives with the city of Miami Beach for Kosovo. We did drives for 9-11, for Katrina, for the tsunami. But I was always on the other side. I was always the one just raising the money. And then I was giving it to Red Cross or different organizations. I was on the executive board of United Way for a year. So I learned that side of it after the Haiti earthquake, I formed our foundation Global Empowerment Mission. At the time, it was called the Haiti Empowerment Mission.
1: All right. So you are running in a fast crowd. And are you making a lot of money? Are you partying? Like, what's what's going on in your personal life? How old are you when you decided to leave?
4: So I started nightlife literally when I was in high school. I was a skater. I was literally passing out flyers for events on uh, my skateboard down Ocean Drive. So that's how long the history was. By the time I was 21 years old, you know, I was literally like at the helm of throwing all the most important parties in Miami.
1: No college. No. No college. Okay. No. So you're no. at the heyday of 21. When did you retire from nightclub life?
4: Uh, fully retired uh, like six years ago.
1: Oh, so that's not even that long. Okay. So wait. So how many years were you doing it?
4: 27 years or so.
1: Okay. So you were doing it for 27 years. So tell us about the party lifestyle and the sort of life change you made. Cause you went from that and then into real estate. Explain the toll that it took on you personally being in the nightclub space, spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially, all of that. Explain that part of that.
4: Yeah. So I went through, by the time I was 21, I was completely lost in excess I um, I got addicted to all different kinds of drugs, and I completely crashed and burned. I um, had everything a twenty-one-year-old could ever want at that time: a boat, a Mercedes, the most beautiful apartment, best friends with you know all kinds of celebrities. Everything. At the time, I was uh, twenty-three. I had gone to about 10 different uh, drug rehab centers. I kept relapsing. I was so addicted Mm -hmm. and I ended up, you know, I I was couch surfing on friends' homes. I got evicted. I had nowhere to stay anymore. And I literally went to New York. I spent uh, some time on someone's, you know, apartment. And then I basically ran out of the house. And when I went into the projects to find some drugs. I got arrested. and When I came back out, um, it was the blizzard of 95. And it was right around Halloween in 95. You can Google the temperatures there at that time, but I believe it was like minus 20 degrees. And there was nowhere, there was no way to get back to basically society at that time, you know? And it was today I look at it as the most valuable lesson that I've ever gone through. And and I encourage people who've gone through really difficult situations in life to try to transmute it and find you know, the real reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world today. If you offered me actually a billion dollars and said we can erase that, I'd say no way. That's how like incredibly valuable it was. But I did honestly spend uh, from the time of Halloween to New Year's Eve, 95, completely homeless in the streets of New York in a blizzard you know, I had a literally a garbage bag as a as a raincoat over me. It was pretty hardcore, and there was subway tokens at the time. I had to collect literally ten subway tokens just to trade them for a ten dollar bill, and then basically just to survive. And you're on this treadmill, and it, it was just this like endless treadmill. And you know, if at at the time you're looking up and you're you're like you know you know, where's God and why did this happen to me? You're in in such a negative state that you you can't see ahead of you. But this was all, I believe, part of my destiny and my formation years for the work that we're actually doing now. I was lucky. I had, you know, a good family and I was flown to Europe. They, you know, put me in the proper treatments and I... uh,
1: At that time or prior to
4: that? Prior to that and then right after that. And,
1: but why did you go, why were you homeless? Cause you had shame. You had a family that would have pulled you out of this. Had you burned every bridge? Like why, what?
4: Yeah. I think, you, I think you burn every single bridge at that time. And there's just, uh, there's just nowhere to go. And I ended up in, uh, Belgium. And from that day on, I've never to this day touched the drug again, a recreational drug ever, not one single time.
1: And no rehab. You had been to 10 rehabs, but this time you did it just on your own. You hit rock bottom, went to Belgium and you didn't go to meetings. You just, not that I'm, not that there's a reason to not go to meetings. Just your path was that you didn't go to meetings.
4: Actually, what happened is when I got clean, I think the universe had one more big surprise for me. Um, Then one day I fell in a coma and I had a benign brain tumor. I was in a coma for like 36 hours when I woke up. They basically told me that I wasn't going to survive. And they told my father there was no chance I could survive, that, you know, with all the things that are going on with me and the methadone and all this stuff. And um, my mother came in and begged them to, you know, at least attempt to try to save me. I underwent three uh, operations on a meningioma tumor. And the total three operations were about 60 hours of brain surgery, imagine.
1: Wow.
4: After that, I got meningitis and that meningitis almost killed me in itself. I had to stay on IV for like two months basically. And you you have so much antibiotics that it basically gets rid of like all your white blood cells. I had a therapist giving me like one pound weights. I remember I couldn't even like lift the one pound weight. That's how like deep in the dark tunnel, you know? I was, and I made it through, and I understood for the first time that, you know, there was a reason why I had actually survived when nobody said, you know, everybody, every doctor there said I wasn't gonna survive. Unfortunately, through the process, my dad had a stroke and then he died while I was in the hospital, in the hospital next door. So that was a very, you know, hard thing on me. And after that, I um, got well, I moved to the Caribbean, I surfed for about a year, I got my strength back, and then I went back to Miami. And then I got back in nightlife because that's the trade that I knew best, but I always knew that I wasn't gonna be in it for you know a very long amount of time. So this time I was back in nightlife in a different Miami. Miami had really changed in the early 90s. It was this bohemian chic, coolest place. And, you know, by the time I got back in 1998, 99, it was much more commercialized, mm-hmm. it was very different. And nightlife wasn't as raw and wasn't as interesting. So I was always looking for other things to do that would be, um, you know, a better fit. So that's when I started um, getting into philanthropy and use, utilizing all my contacts in Miami every time there was a, a, uh, a disaster. And that's how we built this up. You know, basically something would happen. Let's just say 9-11 would happen. I'd call the mayor Neeson Kasdan at the time. I'd say we should organize a Miami citywide drive. And then he'd go on TV and he would say, you know, all the fire stations are collecting aid and everything. And then we would, at that time, as just a private citizen, that's how I got my feet wet with this uh, experience.
1: That's important because people often reach out to me and say, how do I help? And so people say, I want to send a bunch of clothes and then I have to sort of defeat them by saying, if you just send a box of random clothes that, you know, aren't from a big company in multiple sizes, we would have to sort them and then people aren't getting their size and it's demoralizing. And so things that people traditionally think will help aren't necessarily helpful, which is why often money is helpful. But now with social media, communicating and connecting and spreading awareness is a tool, and that's how people have helped a lot. But Michael's discussing that he was just a civilian who wanted to help, and he had a skill set because of nightclub promoting, and he ended up building some houses in real estate development. Um, and I've produced events in my past, large scale events, and I have run a business. And often, the thing that you do in your normal life, even getting your kids off to school or getting the schedule or soccer, or whatever it is in your household connects to philanthropy it could help you with philanthropy so it seems like an inaccessible world to kind of get in in a meaningful way but you just have to dip your foot in and the first time I tried to help nobody wanted to help me and nobody would give me anything and no one would donate money because I was a nobody in that space I was a somebody in entertainment but a nobody in that space so you just kind of gotta be organized be transparent be reliable Delegate, execute, and get on the road and try it.
5: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
6: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic.
2: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The
5: studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful
3: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
1: What year is what you're describing when you got involved, like dipped your toe in? Uh,
4: Kosovo was 1999, so you know there's a good 10 year track record before I actually had my own foundation um, of doing it, you know, with others and and you know sitting on the board of United Way, an amazing organization. You know, you're you're looking at um, you know a different type of structure, right? There's 50 people on the board. It's slow to make decisions, right? Yep. And then the uh, earthquake happened in 2010 in Haiti, mm-hmm. and I think that that was the you know I always say that was probably my biggest uh, turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I was advised, you know, I, I was someone worked in my office. It's incredible, and they happened to be best friends with, uh, this guy, Hassan, and his, uh, mother was like the sister of the president of Haiti or something. So they wrote us, wrote me a letter basically asking for help right after the the earthquake happened. And I gave that letter to, uh, commissioner Gongora at the time, and they requested for, you know, significant, uh, assistance. So I went and got permission to have the fire department come with me to Haiti. So this was a tricky thing because I was kind of the captain of the mission, but I wasn't a firefighter and I had never been to Haiti, but we had a lot of support from the government at the time. They gave us uh, you know, a couple big buses and we had collected all kinds of supplies in Miami. We were there right after the earthquake happened. We were one of the first teams there And that was the most, you know, insane experience that you could ever imagine. I mean, just to give you an example, um, when we showed up at a hospital where basically there was, you know, 500 people there that were screaming the whole time, Mm -hmm. most people had a rock that had like fallen on their arm and their Mm -hmm. arm was like hanging by a thread. And it had been like four days and there was like maggots in there, like blood. And there was no time for anesthesia to evaluate everything. I think the, the team I brought, I can honestly say, probably amputated more than like 30 limbs in front of me. I held ladies' arms while they were like getting cut off.
1: I was watching, I was pregnant. I was watching the coverage of Haiti while I think I was six months pregnant. And I remember George Clooney getting up and saying something. And this is what's scary, that back then... Something like Haiti, the earthquake, was a very big deal in the news. That would be on for weeks at a time, and it was one thing that everyone was focusing on. And I'm going to get into now, we have to, because of just the the way that this whole conversation is flowing, we're going to get into how we met. I know that Michael ended up doing about 90 trips to Haiti since then, but I remember watching on television kids on lines from medical care, exactly what you're saying. And it made me feel so helpless, and I wanted to get involved in... Helping children in charities, because I was in the liquor business, I, they didn't think it was a good idea for me to be in a children's charity, because I'm, I'm in the liquor business, and those two things don't don't collide, and they were very careful about where I spent my time, because I wanted my partners to really get involved. That's how I later ended up getting involved with Dress for Success, which is a great charity, too, to help women um get on their feet and get jobs and help other people to get jobs. But that Haiti, where you were, where your, where your tipping point was, that was what the first time I ever thought about philanthropy. I had never had any money. So watching on the news about Haiti was the first time I ever thought, wow, I want to do something. I want to not just donate money randomly or percentage of percentages of things that I sell to go somewhere. I want to do something, but I didn't know how to enter. And what I bring up that that was the biggest deal in the world. Then now You'll be dealing with a hurricane at the same time as a shortage of PPE in the country, at the same time as a building collapses and there are 300 people dead. Right now, there's a massive homeless crisis in the country, but you you just sent me a text that we're still sending aid to Louisiana because when the headlines fade, we're still finishing missions. So the headlines fade after the Australia fires, but we've committed to do relief work, so we're still finishing. So- We'll get into all that sort of, but we're going to get into how I met Michael. Uh, I had already done a relief effort for Hurricane Harvey in Texas. I decided I wanted to do something. I ended up raising $300,000 in money and in kind, and it was impossible. For me to get this money and to get this going was impossible. Nobody knew who I was, nobody cared. I'm going to give Tinsley Mortimer a shout out because she donated $10,000 at that time to an unproven charity. And that was a big bulk of the beginning of the money. And it sort of put us on the map and me going there and getting all these pictures, put us on the map. And I did that. And it was a one-off. It was just something I really wanted to help. It was, this is actually a crisis. That's how that started. Um, I was watching all these celebrities linked to big bureaucratic charities that i you know, people don't know where they're donating, don't know what these people are doing. I later learned even more from Michael about the percentage that actually goes. There are a lot of scams. There are a lot of legal scams and a lot of illegal scams. But if you're putting money, you need to know exactly where it's going. You're donating money. If it's a dollar, if it's a million dollars, you need to know exactly where it's going. That's been missing. So now I finish that. And then Hurricane Maria hits. And that's in Puerto Rico and it's everywhere in the news. And I have no idea how to insert myself. I don't know what to do. I'm texting all these celebrities that I know, plane, help me get a plane. Nobody's flying in there. What do we do? The one thing that was sure was that they needed aid and they needed planes because of the Jones Act boats couldn't go in to deliver aid. So it would normally be a very easy trip for us. We, We have a warehouse in Miami, which Michael will get into, but this was now a logistical difference each each disaster has some weird logistical difference that you would never know. So no two disasters are the same. You don't use the same skill set. And then the next time, you know everything. You call back to certain things. But PPE masks being missing is a, was a new world. Dust from volcanoes erupting was a new world. Surfside was a new world. People were under rubble. So Maria was a new world because they had the Jones Actors in place. You couldn't bring boats in. People need a plane. So now I'm obsessed with finding a plane. I finally decided, okay, I'll spend my money. I'm going to charter a plane. And we're going to fill it with stuff from Costco. What do we do? How do we fill this plane? And what do we do when we get there? I knew one Puerto Rican woman who was very connected. And that was sort of what I had going. She was very connected. So we were going to fill this plane. So I start calling people about filling this plane. And then Jennifer Bell says, I know a girl who I already knew. What, who was it? What was the girl with the son? I'm mixing up her name, Eve, a girl named Eve. And she says, I know a guy who has a warehouse filled with aid. So now enter Michael and myself on a group text with this guy, Omar, and you could take it away. What happened from your perspective, my perspective, I'm connected to you. You can help me fill this plane. So I don't have to go to Costco and fill this order that these children's hospitals had been giving to me by Twitter and by text, you can help me and you can help me distribute. So now enter Michael in my life.
4: Yeah. So at the time we we had borrowed a warehouse from uh, Moishimana and it was like a pop-up and he just let us operate out of there. And we were dealing with only local uh, community collection aid, right? People Ah. from Miami were just dropping off stuff. So we had a whole bunch of supplies, maybe 2 million pounds worth of uh, supplies. You wanted uh, to fill the plane. So, you know, we agreed. And I think uh, Violet and Omar and everybody um, went with you. And ironically, um, you know, I had been, I had seen before, you know, people and the Kim Kardashians and things like that, you know, go to Haiti. And I didn't think it was going to have any impact. And I remember in the beginning, Thinking in my head, it's funny, I could say it now because you've certainly showed yourself to be the exact opposite of that. But I was like, oh, a housewife wants to go to Puerto Rico? I was like, you guys take her. I don't need to go on this trip. It's just going to be whatever, you know?
1: But you guys were praying for someone with a plane, I heard. Omar said you were praying for someone to come with a plane
4: well even more ironically in my meditations you know it had like kind of shown me that you know something really big was going to happen and that you know we were going to play a significant role in these disasters. and i actually remember telling my team before i met you i was like it's interesting the universe is basically telling me that we're going to play this major role in this thing and you know there's like barely any funds and you know in, in, to operate with i don't know how we're going to make a dent in this and then all of a sudden my phone started getting these Google alerts and I was looking and it was like Bethany Frankel in Puerto Rico with Global Empowerment Mission. And I kept getting them. And then, um, I noticed our, uh, you know, donation link was starting to like buzz a lot. And there was like donations coming in. You and I hadn't even really met yet.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And, I was very impressed. I was like, wow, this one really has some, you know, amazing impact. So I picked you up at the airport and then you were very touched by Puerto Rico and you were like, oh, my God, I need to do more. I need to do more. What can I do? You know, and I remember in the car we were like, you know, should get on our advisory board and you could be, you know, spokesperson at the time and, you know, really help us. And literally within a week, you went and told your Puerto Rico story on all these talk shows from Ellen to, you know, I forgot there was so many. But every time you did that, you brought an amazing amount of awareness and the warehouse, we would start getting emails that, you know, what you and I had figured out is that we weren't the only ones in Miami collecting aid. And that's the whole secret that there was people that had uh, fundraisers and drives in South Carolina, in Texas, in Ohio, all over. And we knew that there was no way that this groups, these groups were going to be able to actually execute that. So we started reaching out to them and because of the exposure that was given, they started contacting us too. The next thing you know, we inherited like 10 million pounds worth of aid, which is a lot.
1: So, yeah. So what Michael's saying, two things that happened. I went on the first trip and did distributions and went over to the state building. And these guys in khakis were sitting there with coffees. And it was miles, literally miles and minutes away from where people were waiting on their roofs for water. They, they were rationing insulin. I mean, they were dying because no one would go there. They had no electricity, no clean water. No one would go. The president hadn't been there yet. And, um, and so people would just pull up to this truck. Didn't matter if they got toilet paper, diapers, they didn't care. They were just waiting for hours and hours and hours for water, for everything. So when I came back, that was the first of like six trips that I did. I, As Michael said, I was I was talking about it. Ellen gave three planes. Steve Harvey gave a plane. Elvis Duran gave a plane. We ended up doing 53 planes in and out. Each mission was tailored differently. And as Michael's explaining, he was amassing the aid all over the country because we were using Twitter as a tool. Twitter was where I would write this stuff. And then children's hospitals would say, hey, we need A A, B, C, D, E. And then um, but but in Ohio, a church would say we have thousands of pounds because people around the country were inadvertently just without a plan, and this is the point about philanthropy we have to get into. Amassing aid, they were doing drives, taking uh, convention centers and high schools, and taking in aid. It's you can't just take in aid without a distribution plan. So we were saving them because you can't take people's donations without a way to distribute it. And people have gotten into major trouble doing that in the Australia fires. And, you know, philanthropy is a serious business. You can't just take in aid and not distribute it. So we were helping people saying, well, you got to get the aid to us. So around the country, Michael was like promote this, talk about this. And I was telling it on Twitter. And then people were calling us from high schools and convention centers. And we would say, get it, to, get it to the dock in Miami and we'll move it. What do you have? So I became this switchboard and Michael became this operations person. And when he picked me up at the airport, he scared the shit out of me because he was like, you're going to be uh, our, our head whatever. I forgot what the hell you said. You'll be the head person and you'll be the fit. I'm like, whoa, no, I'm doing one relief work to Puerto Rico. Relax. I have a business. I have a daughter. Like I'm not your everything. He had me introduced to everybody and he wanted me to sort of be the face of this whole thing. And I was like, take it easy. Well, Cause Michael's very pushy in that way. And I'm very like boundaries. And so I was like, I thought I was doing one mission. Lo and behold we've been to Guatemala we've been I was in Mexico we've been to Australia fires we've been to California many times North Carolina Louisiana Haiti
4: 30 countries 30 now
1: 30 countries and and we did the we've done the largest private relief efforts in the United States history just the two of us literally with a small group of volunteers So lean because we don't have that bureaucracy and we're not spending thousands of dollars wasting it. And Michael gets so frustrated when he hears people donating their money to these relief organizations that take six months to get something done and that take 40% for themselves for their offices and their travel. I pay for my own travel. I pay for my own team. I pay for my own everything. So 100% of Be Strong donations goes so we collided and we started doing crazy stuff like everywhere. And Michael is operations. Like I'm, he's, you've been an amazing partner in, and we've been through serious stress. We've been through stress. We've been through corruption. We've been through some crazy shit, but I'm always the person who, you know, makes sure that I have to know exactly where the money's going and I have to control the message and what we're working on. And like, Because Michael wants to do everything in every place, which is great. But I'll be like, no, now it's time to pull the car out. We have to like close this up because if we get in too deep, we can't get out. So, and Michael will be like, well, we have to finish this up because we still have to build these schools and we still have to, you know, help these churches. And so it's a very good marriage of me controlling... Michael, Michael controlling what I'm saying. If I'm saying something I can't be saying because we're dealing with a government and we have to be politically correct and we have to play the game and be diplomatic with them because we are sometimes going rogue, meaning we're not going and attaching ourselves to a government, otherwise we'd be able to get nothing done. But we also have to play the game with the government, otherwise they won't let us fly our planes in or our boats in or whatever we're doing or our military in or our retired military in. So it's a a serious situation.
2: from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and
5: creator of Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful
1: I want you to talk a little bit about lack of transparency in the world of philanthropy, like how people don't know where they're donating to and how you get frustrated when you see celebrities posting links and they have no idea where the money is really going. I'd like you to talk about that. And I will say that you are a very, uh, we both started more naive. You may be even more naive than I did. But when we got started on this level with this public sort of awareness, I don't think you saw a lot of the corruption coming. And I was like a step ahead of you with that, being like, oh no, we got to keep our circle so tight because this is where corruption lies. Because when it's a shit show and it's a disaster and we're trying to help and everyone's trying to help, we think everybody else is like us and wants to help. And that's when the predators come in. So let's talk about first transparency, bureaucracy, and how we work on such a lean budget based compared to other people and... Um, and then talk about the corruption that we've seen and how people really don't know necessarily where they're donating, no matter how famous the person is who's doing it or, you know, that kind of thing.
4: Yeah. So when we go back to the Haiti story, right, where it all originates from, basically, you know, billions was was hundreds of billions of dollars were, were raised for Haiti. Um, I was on the board of, you know, a giant uh, organization and I didn't have my own foundation. And, you know, after trip two, we set up a tent city. And then the, all the, the whole time I was like, you know, the big orgs are gonna come in and basically just fix this and take it over, we'll have just done that. Mm-hmm. And after about nine, 10 months in Haiti, I realized that was never gonna happen. And I own this problem. And the 3000 people I had in my tent city, there was nothing I could do with them. I either just walk away and own that karma for life or I have to find a plan for them and that led me to you know this basically you have to problem solve on every single thing so you're very correct every single disaster is Exactly like a new corporate startup, you have to basically have a new set of donors, a new master plan, a new string of governments, new shipping routes. Right? Sometimes it's by plane, by ship, by all different kinds of carriers.
1: But there's case law that does help us. Meaning, it is totally different. But there are some fuck ups that you've made or some stresses that we've had, so we wouldn't make that mistake again. You know what I mean?
4: Yeah. Well, the you know the biggest thing is that you know we do not distribute aid unless you know, we're doing it ourselves or supervising a, a partner. Right. So like we just pulled off right now. Let's stick with Haiti. Those little kids that were sleeping in that tent city in 2010, we have put them through college. Those kids are in college now. They're wearing B-Strong shirts. Now they're fully educated. They speak English. They're at the port in a secret port where we have a 400 foot ship come and literally delivered the last load was 529 pallets. I mean, think about how big that Mm -hmm. is. Just for someone to understand that, that's 22 18-wheelers filled with supplies, right, that we brought to Haiti. And we didn't just dump it off there and hope for the best. We were there for 12 days at that port. We had 67 Haitian trucks come from different groups and organizations and come pick that aid up and drive it to, like, every single part of... The whole South Coast in three different zones or states or departments—that is a lot of uh, managing and orchestration. At the same time, you have uh, Americans that are kidnapped. You know, the whole country has no gas, no nothing. But you know, we figured it out, and we you know succeeded on this. And mm-hmm. you know, they're big accomplishments. Um, Hurricane Ida—we already sent 18, eight eight eighteen-wheeler trucks with our partner UC Group. And now we're going to send another ten of rebuilding materials. We're going to have ten trucks of just plywood to rebuild. In the Bahamas, we sent twenty-four barges. Imagine an entire barge that's you know two hundred feet long uh, with supplies stacked. So we've grown you know incredibly, and the mission we just did in Haiti and there's an, actually an article about it right now. If the government would have done that exact same mission, it would have cost taxpayers minimum fifty to sixty million dollars. We probably pulled that off for three hundred grand.
1: That's what I want to com- convey. When I came into the warehouse with Michael, I because I'm very organized, as you all know, I wanted there to be a system. I wanted there to be boxes, a assembly line, and things to be ready. Obviously, they didn't have the money yet, but now we had the we had the we had the awareness, the track record to have it merchandised, pet supplies, medicine. He's got plywood in there. You know, Michael's always connecting the way he used to at nightclubs. So now we have a warehouse that's fully staged at all times for anything that could possibly happen, from masks and sanitizer to water to every feminine products, everything. Kind Bars, uh, Goya has donated Delta Blankets. Like, we have real... Uh, connections now. So it's a great feeling once you are credible. And like you said, they know that they're getting a better ROI because it's only costing you 300,000, not millions. I want to just tell a couple of things. I want to say, number one, the proof of this fact is that I don't want to name names, but one of these massive, the biggest org that you can imagine that is always linked by every celebrity to donate to. I took two people, two very famous A-list people on missions to Puerto Rico on planes, missions that probably cost thirty to $50,000, because they went to that organization and said, hi, we see what's going on in Puerto Rico, we have money, we want to donate a plane and fill it. And they said, that's not what we do. So you're talking about someone at the level of like, a you know, Demi Lovato or Ariana Grande calling and saying, I have money, I have $50,000, I want a plane filled with aid, and they're going to the biggest org saying, can you help us? And they say, no, we don't do that. You should call Bethany Frankel. So these people are calling me, who the hell am I? What the hell do I know? So I'm taking them on these aids. One was to go to the, uh, the elderly. I think it was the hospitals that had no generators. Another one was just regular relief to go through villages and bring aid to a bunch of different houses. And that's the point. So, you you know, just because it has a name brand, if it's a purse, it doesn't mean it's better than a bag that's much less expensive. And just because it has a name brand, if it's a relief org... You're probably paying for the markup, just like in an expensive handbag. You're paying for the packaging, the real estate, the bureaucracy, the travel, their literature, all the bullshit, their website, their social media. You're paying for all that shit. So we are sort of like, we don't do rubber chicken dinners. We don't pay for tablecloths. We don't pay for talent. It's the money from you guys to the people. And I also want to say, you have played such an amazing role in helping us because you you tell us when the thing happens. We may not even know. Often Michael knows about weather patterns and disasters, but you let us know, this is a problem. Look what just happened. I found out about World for my assistant and then looked at social media and it was everywhere there from you. And then I reached out to Michael and said, can we help these families? So because of you, things become important to us. If so many people say it to us, it becomes important to us because of social media. I've had hospitals reach out to us and say, we need exactly this. And then we go to the warehouse and deliver it to them. I send that message to Michael and then he executes it. If we can help, if he needs volunteers, he tells me to put it into the, to the, to the sphere and then you guys reach out to him. I mean, so social media has been literally the reason that this has been so successful. So I need to say you have helped. How much have they helped? Homeless crisis. like uh, Because of the homeless crisis, now other people are talking about their cities. Michael was homeless for a brief period in his life. So this is something that became important to us and we get to execute it um, and hear what's important to you. So I just want to say that you have been amazing in this whole journey for us.
4: And I want to thank your donors, too, because, uh, you know, we really wouldn't be able to do it without you, Bethany. And and um, I mean, there's no chance. I mean, we have, I think we've distributed $130 million worth of supplies since you and I've met. Um, substantial, you know, and um, I want to make a point, right? So you have the Amazon fires, and every single celebrity and guru and spiritual person is, you know, tweeting and posting about, you know, stop the Amazon fires, right? But action speaks louder than words, right? So what are you doing about it, right? So what did we do? We flew there immediately, right? And we went where the fires were actually happening. And we spoke with all the mayors on the ground, with literally showing us with binoculars, explaining to us how it can be stopped. They said, we have farmers everywhere. And basically we can turn them overnight into firefighters if only we had firefighter equipment for them. The mayors told me this literally on Tuesday, just to show the donors how quickly we operate and said, we need right now equipment to make 300 farmers, firefighters to put out these fires right here. I flew back to the capital of Bolivia, found a company that sells fire equipment, purchased it on the spot, and sent a couple of truckloads to the region. By Thursday, 48 hours later, we were outfitting the farmers and they were going out there and they put out the fires.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing about the transparency. What happens is we assess what's needed. Then I talk to Michael, we have a goal. Then I tell you what the goal is. I don't say we 100% can get this done. I say what the goal is and then I come back to you and then to say what we've executed. That's why it's always a mission update. And some, you know, I try to do that not too much because I don't want to badger people with information or asking for money. It's the, it becomes the boy who cried wolf. I ask when like, we really need to ask. And just so you know, 99.9% of the money, or probably 95 now, uh, goes 100% to the cash cards, to the people. All the aid in the warehouse is donated, so we're not going and buying rice with the money you're, you're sending. It's, it's all in the warehouse with the exception of if let's say that Michael and I thought let's say he finds fire equipment. Then he has to say to me, can I have permission to spend a hundred thousand dollars or $50,000 or $15,000 to, to, to transport the equipment or whatever it is. But this is like literally my accounts are involved. I'm involved. Michael asks me if it's okay. Do I approve it? There's a whole process as if we have this corporate infrastructure. Um, so there's a whole thing that goes on behind the scenes and, you just guys have been amazing. And so the transparency has been hugely important. And yes, you're right. People post what's important to them because they see a picture of a koala bear and then they give a link and it always is annoying to us because celebrities then drive all this money or they themselves donate money. And Michael's hitting his head going, oh, they're fucking giving to that. And 60% is what really goes. Like we get frustrated. We're passionate about it. So, uh, we've done amazing things. Uh, The PPE thing almost killed us. I mean, that was insane and it was stressful and it was brutal and there was corruption and there was stealing and it was bad and it it kills me and everybody around me has to sort of intervene because this is your job. That's not my only job. And everybody sort of feels like they have to pull me out because I can't get myself out. So I have to control myself and I have to control myself for my health and decide when to extricate and when we have to close things up and not do everything. So that's been a big... And not go to every single thing. It's like an event. I may be... I made say, I, I tried to fly to New Orleans and remember all the flights got canceled and we will raise more money if I am physically there. And we, I've been to the Bahamas many times and Puerto Rico and everywhere, but I can't go to everything. So I've had to control myself in this process. Otherwise I'd be killing myself. I used to go to Guatemala and Mexico and everywhere. So I can, can't go every single place I go. I choose my spots. You're usually there all the time. And you've done amazing things and we've been an amazing team really like with business sticking to the boundaries and sticking to the roles and sticking to what we both are good and, and sticking to our skill sets.
5: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
2: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeart Media. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone, The studios didn't really
5: control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful
1: support yourself being a philanthropist how do you support yourself financially
4: so from the global empowerment mission side not the not the um be strong side i have a board approved salary and uh, that's how i run the foundation now and i've forfeited you know all my other things because this requires basically i work Honestly, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. This is from 7 a.m. to midnight. There's no time for anything. You know, you have to track these things. You have to, if I, I used to surf and I still do, and when I saw a a big swell coming and, you know, going to Barbados, I would fly to Barbados, um, you know, because I knew that swell was gonna hit. That's how we operate today with hurricanes. I mean, the donors should know when Hurricane Ida was still offshore, we were loading our 18-wheeler trucks with UC Group.
1: Same with Bahamas. We were flying when the thing was still happening. The thing was with Bahamas, the storm was still happening when I was flying there.
4: We, we were doing recon, you know, um, while the, the thing was still still twirling. So the the name of the game today is like I said, it's like you, you, you were always usually the first or second people on the ground. Um, You know, World Kitchen's incredible. They're always there, you know, early also. Yeah. And, you know, you get there and you assess. They have to assess, you know, what they do. And we do a a different role, right? And we have to assess that immediately. So you fly into Abaco and you get a quick read. Okay, there's 300 homes that are destroyed. How many are we going to be able to realistically repair? Let's take half. But you got to assess the situation. And then literally within 24 hours, you got to come up with a game plan, right? So
1: it's effectively Shark Tank. You come up with your business plan and you then have to present it because you're trying to get people to donate. You're trying, you're you're distributing aid while trying to update your website. You're dealing with celebrities and they want a deck. And you're like, I don't have a deck on what's going on in Puerto Rico because we're creating the deck as it's happening. So that's been great about me being a person who's got credibility in business, just being able to say, I don't know, you want to help or you don't want to help? Like, you gotta get us some money. And they just do. That because now People know that we're going to be first and furious and we have a warehouse and that's the beauty of what we've done. So, but we have to be very careful at all times because shit can go sideways anytime. We experienced treacherous conditions in PPE. I remember you said, Bethany, you got to fucking lay off at the pressure because I'm going to jump off a building because that one situation, which was touch and go, it ended up being written about in the New York Times, the PPE fraud and corruption. Remember, we didn't know what was going on until we were in the middle of it. Meaning, I started to say to Michael, something's fucked up with these people. And we were in the middle of something where people were trying to scam us using literally state governments. People were being investigated everywhere. And we were like right in the middle of it because everyone knew that we were working on this. And we were getting into warehouses and getting aid that no governments were getting. So we were a target and we had to identify that really quickly. And it was scary because we had, we had committed to getting PPE to hospitals and to uh, states and people were trying to scam us at the same time. Do you remember like how bad that was and you were freaking out? It, it's crazy. And we, realized, we realize now that like we have to know that people are coming to scam during times of disaster.
4: As soon as the pandemic happened, you know, you got a uh, hundred or so groups that basically hijacked all the existing PPE and just sat on it in different warehouses and, and marked it up. And then the hospitals couldn't get to it. So we were forced right. to negotiate with some of them and, and, and buy through them. And some were legit and some were illegitimate.
1: But we didn't know that immediately. No. We didn't know what the deal was worldwide with masks. We didn't know what the deal was. You're learning, you're flying a plane while you're building it. So you gotta be sort of watching for everything that could happen because while it's happening, you can't wait. You can't like vet something, you can't do a research project on something. That's what disaster relief is. That's why it's scary. Because the people people are dying. People were dying, doctors were dying. So you had to sort of be figuring out the equation and the enigma and where the scams are while doing it time isn't on your side that's the one thing it's different than a business because you might you can't create a business plan when people are dying
4: I mean we did you know we did incredible things I we, we sent PPE to 750 different institutions including you know maybe 500 hospitals 200 nursery homes and no big deal we sent uh, 10 10 18 wheelers of just uh, hazmat suits to New York City alone and you know, we we had a purchase uh, at the time PPE because there was nowhere to get it. But ironically, in uh, the end of 2020 and especially 2021, now these same uh, people that were trying to sell it to us, they got stuck with it. And now they wanted to give it back and donate. And we probably received this year alone about $35 million worth of donated PPE. Can you imagine?
1: No, it's crazy. It was a stock. It was a stock surge. And it was the stock was up through the roof. And we were trying to buy that stock when it was at the peak. So we were trying to figure out how what's more important money than or time. And governments decided and we decided that money was less important than time. We were set, masks were up to $7.50 in certain crazy states when they should be $0.49. And we were trying to to deal with that and then try to also get masks once the stock crashed. And then everybody was trying to deplete. It was a crazy scam situation. Same thing with the hazmat suits. Anyway, we're inside baseball. Um, You have been amazing and done amazing things. And you've dedicated your whole life to helping people. And um, how many years ago did we meet?
4: Six now. Almost 6'5", right?
1: It's been extraordinary. It's been extraordinary. It's been really extraordinary. Nobody else is like you. Nobody. You can get things done that nobody else can do. It's. It makes sense that you used to do real estate development. It makes sense you used to do nightclubs. You really can figure out crazy stuff. Dealing with corruption, with crime, with hijackers, with different... You're very good dealing with different... You know, you've had we've had to please Republicans, Democrats, the Christians, the Jews, like riding the line, knowing the political landscape, what to say, what not to say. It's been excellent. It's been a great, great ride, not without bumps, but no businesses. And it's been amazing. And I'm really grateful for it.
4: No, I'm really we're really grateful for you. I really think that you have, uh, you know, you we have have made it, you know, you really have. Um Every single time I go to a place, it's problem solving. And that's the mind has to understand how to problem solve. You have to go there. Okay. What's the situation? What's the need? And then our job is to come back and how can we get this need to this place for the least amount of money in the quickest amount, in the shortest amount of time.
1: That's, that's business. So that's why. Yeah.
4: And we we're successful at it every time. There's a California fire, a truck is there two weeks later. Ida, we had trucks 48 hours later. You know, St. Vincent, we were the first ones there.
1: Um, all right, Michael, it's been amazing. Um, I'm so grateful. And I'm glad that that's why in the beginning I wanted you to people to hear your story because it's connected to what we're talking about. You know, people need to, want to hear like a person's story because you might be just like them. So uh, if you want to donate, Bethany, B E T H E N N Y dot com slash be strong. And we are transparent in what we're working on and what we have worked on and where the money goes. And Michael is integral in that process. So I wanted to talk about giving back and sort of our process, much like a small business, in how we get these things done. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation because I like to bring everything back to business, which philanthropy, if done properly, is very much like a small business, because you have to be lean and watch costs and execute in an organized, transparent manner. Michael's had an interesting story. I thought it was important to give you the whole story, his trajectory from where it started to where it is now, because that is instrumental in all of the work that we've done. So you might be a philanthropist and not even know it. If you have these skill sets, you know, if you have this these attributes. And I just want to thank you all so much for helping because you've helped immeasurably with our relief missions. Even if you've donated, you've helped. If you've connected, if you've communicated, if you've spread the word, if you've let me know where something's happening, if you've given me information, you have helped. So thank you so much.